0: This morning as we had the theme of battle and war, I was thinking about my ministry, which extends to about 25 years now of being a preacher and a pastor. And I was thinking about how largely over the years um, I have been taught by my congregations and have been led by them. You know, of course, of the leadership of my elder and his wife, Don and Evelyn Jared, up in Wisconsin, who uh, rebuked me for not trusting God, that God would be pleased to use a church where women did not serve as elders. Evelyn was an elder. And uh, Don and Evelyn took a step of faith. She resigned as an elder, and I thought that would be the end of my ministry because, of course, our ministries are built on Uh, our own ability to massage and stroke the egos of people and to apply the Scripture only insofar as the people are ready for that Scripture. And uh, so when Evelyn tried to resign, I told her, don't do that because I'm faithless and you're a fool. I didn't say those things to her, but by all means, don't resign as an elder because God can't handle biblical churches. We need to bow the knee, tip the hat to the new Constitution, um, and be feminist well i 'm thinking today, as we were having our worship led, that as Don and Evelyn led me into becoming obedient to scripture in the nature of manhood and womanhood, and being willing to have women actually submissive and being able to call women to submission, which for me was a radical step. Um, It's also true that having a church that recognizes the warfare of the Christian life has been a real education for me. And uh, seeing the degree to which all through history that uh, there is a contest and a battle. Um, You all know that I love reading the Reformers. And one of the reasons I love reading the Reformers is that the Reformers are in the middle of a battle and it just permeates everything they write and everything they preach. And uh, today you could fall asleep in the church, couldn't you? Couldn't you? Not with our band, but you could go to most churches today and you could think there wasn't a battle, couldn't you? Be honest. And there is a way of approaching every text in Scripture in such a way as to hide the battle, And that's what the Bible means when it says that people surround themselves with preachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Those are preachers that hide the battle. And this morning we come to a text that's just perfect to hide the battle. So open with me to Matthew 20 and we'll read it. Matthew chapter 20. We're going through Matthew, picking up after many, many years of being gone and i want us to read matthew chapter 20 verses 29 to 34 as they were leaving jericho this is the word of god and it is eternally true as they were leaving jericho a large crowd followed him and two blind men sitting by the road hearing that jesus was passing by cried out lord have mercy on us son of david the crowd sternly told them to be quiet but they cried out all the more And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Now, why would I say that this is a passage of conflict? It looks like a very nice story, doesn't it? the story about how uh, two blind men spending their lives begging. One day have Jesus go by and they call out to him. Jesus hears them and Jesus goes over and Jesus heals them and they have their sight restored. Not only that, but if you read the synoptic accounts of this story, you'll find that Jesus says That their faith has made them well or has healed them. And it's clear from that that it's not just their eyes, but that they are given new birth. That their faith unites them to Christ and they are saved. It's not just about their eyes. It doesn't seem like there's really much here to make into a conflict, but trust me, Tim Bailey will do it if he can. (laughs) Every single text of Scripture has tension. And we find that Jesus never goes anywhere without tension developing. Why is this? Well, let's get into it. First of all, this is an account at the end of Jesus' itinerant ministry. What does itinerant mean? Well, it means peripatetic. Itinerant ministry is where the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You remember that one of the scribes came to Jesus and said to him, Matthew 8, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you remember what it was said about Jesus in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53? Pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah prophesied this about the Messiah. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And so when I say it's the end of his itinerant ministry, I mean it's the end of his ministry where he had no place to lay his head. He had no home. He didn't have a foxhole. He did not have a bird's nest. He had no place to lay his head. And for three years, Jesus went around healing and feeding and calming the storms and preaching and teaching. And he had no place to lay his head, the son of man. And this is what is meant by an itinerant ministry from place to place. No permanent, no abiding home. He's coming to the end of it, and he's about to go into Jerusalem. Now, you remember from last week, this is the Passover time, the high uh, sort of holy day of the Jews, and everybody goes up and makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he's going through the town of Jericho. Now, you remember Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And this is the entry point to the promised land for the, for the Israelites when they didn't want to go. And then finally, after 40 years they're on their way in, they hit Jericho right away. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to rescue his people from their captivity to Satan and to hell. And he's going through Jericho and Jericho is the entry point. Now, there's no record of him going through Jericho again. Uh, This is the time. And where was Jericho? It was sat about 1,200 feet below sea level, very hot, but also a place that people would uh, go because it was beautiful. It had lots of palm trees and it was a place of great beauty. And Jericho, if you think with me about Jerusalem being here, it says they were on their way up to Jericho. And it's similar over in England that even if you're up north and you're going to London, you can say that they're going up to London, south, but up. All right, so Jericho is right here, and they're approaching Jerusalem. Now, the question is, why wouldn't they go here? Well, over here, about 12 to 15 miles is Jericho, and the Jews had a habit of doing what? Well, they'd go east and south, southeast, so that then they could approach Jerusalem directly from the east, going west into Jerusalem, and that way escape the Samaritans in Samaria. They didn't want to get dirty. They didn't want to go through the land of the Samaritans, which was directly above Jerusalem. So they go out east and then come in through. So a long days walk Jericho to Jerusalem. This is where they're leaving Jericho. And it says in verse 9, 29, that as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Probably a combination of people who were attached to Christ, to his teaching, to his preaching, definitely to his healing. And definitely to his food. He's established now that he is the one who has the food. Okay? He's fed them a number of times. And so it's a bit of a party atmosphere. You know, you show up at the house that has endless supplies of beer. Right? Well, he's got the bread. He's got the fish, the loaves. And so the people have a bunch of mixed reasons for following him, don't they? And they're going up to Jerusalem because that's where you celebrate Passover. So there's a huge crowd around him. And as they leave Jericho with a large crowd following him, it says, verse 30, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Now, how did the people respond? Well, let's look a little bit about what it meant to be a blind man back then. Being a blind man back then wasn't like today. You didn't have a little white cane and everybody was deferential to you. You didn't have a little chirping bird at the intersections telling you when it's safe to walk. Back then, being blind was real degradation and humiliation. It's about like a man today that would have like a basketball-sized goiter coming out of his neck. It was nothing pretty. And back then, they didn't have an entitlement mentality. It It is something that is very, very frustrating to me. How much of Scripture is completely foreign to our experience. You've heard me comment about how little we can understand the Bible because we've never lived on a farm. How do you explain to a man what it is to be a shepherd if he's never seen a dairy farmer or a shepherd sheep? It's hard to understand. And today we have an entitlement mentality. It's very difficult for us to understand what the vibes were between these blind men in the crowd and Jesus. Because today, if you're blind, you have a subsidy. And it's not something you get by mercy. It's something that you are owed. And this permeates the Western world. Society, that nebulous corporate entity, has an obligation to provide for anybody that has any need. And so money never comes as an act of compassion in America today, does it? Even when it comes from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's not an act of compassion Because there's a whole host of administrators and NGOs between you and the gates. They may show up sometime to a few people, and then there can be some connection. All right? So in other words, today, when you're blind, there's a certain humiliation, but very little. Because you'll have a pension, and you'll have... All the the ramps will make it easy for your wheelchair. I'm mixing what's going on here. But you understand, everything is set up in such a way that the humiliation that goes with being defective, not differently abled, but defective, all of it is smoothed away by the federal government. So you go into an office and you say, I'm poor and I have children and they give you WIC coupons. And it, you, you're owed it because you pay tax. Well, not really. You actually, but your father or your your cousin or your mother they pay taxes. Now think about this. How do you even enter into the mind of the blind men and the crowd and Jesus? When you live in America in the Western world today, where everything is Marxism or socialism or democratic uh, entitlements? Okay, Johnny, what did you just say? Huh? Oh, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was helpful. I trust your mind. Now, if you've been to Africa or if you've been to truly poor countries, uh, you may have some ability to enter into this. Nevertheless, these blind men were humble. They couldn't be proud and they couldn't demand, could they? And so what did they do? They yelled. <laughs> they yelled, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, here's the very interesting thing. What was the response of the crowd? Yeah, the crowd told him. What do you think they actually said? I mean, really? Do you think they just said, hush? Oh, Uh, I think probably they looked at them and said you know shut up shut your mouth that's what I think was said and you can tell from the text that it's very aggressive it is intense now how did the, how did these guys respond what does the bible tell us when everybody told them to shut up how did they respond they cried out all the more. They, they weren't shut up, were they? Why do you think the crowd told them to shut up? This is what you're supposed to do when you read the Bible. You're supposed to see the conflict, see it. Not pass over it looking for that text which will uplift you. You're supposed to see it. What's the conflict? The conflict is between the blind men and the crowd. Who is the crowd? Is the crowd Samaritans? Is that who the crowd is? No. Who is the crowd today? Who is it? It's the church, isn't it? It's the church. Can you imagine that, that the church would tell the blind men to shut up when they cried out to Jesus? the church do that you say tim get back to the text okay i'll go back to the text why would the jews going up to jerusalem to worship on the passover (laughs) okay why would they tell the blind men to shut up well number one it may have been that since they were crying out son of david they didn't want them to proclaim jesus to be the messiah It was clear that they were saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And feeling the tension, feeling the anger of all the religious leaders, certainly people knew that the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus, right? The storm clouds are gathering and they're what? They're making the tension all the more because they're proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Son of David! And they say, shut up! The storm clouds are gathering. He's going up to Jerusalem. Shut up. Don't call him the son of David. That probably was part of it. But what was another part of it? Well, another part of it is that it's very unseemly to have a man with a basketball-sized goiter making a spectacle of himself in the presence of hundreds or thousands. People like that are supposed to know their place, and their place is to not call attention to themselves themselves. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a huge mole sticking out of the side of your neck, the mole's always yelling, look at me, look at me, look at me. You know, these people are to be hidden. They're the people that are to be covered. They're the people that are supposed to have the loincloth over them. They're not supposed to be calling attention to themselves because they're a living reproach to their neighbors. You all feel this, right? If you have somebody next to you that's dirty and smells, what do you do? Well, you don't want to call attention to him, and you certainly don't want him calling attention to himself. You know this guy that drives through downtown, right? Some of you know this guy. I don't know who he is. I've never stopped and loved him, right? But he drives through downtown on his little wheelie thingamabugger, you know? And he's got this, like, crutch sticking out of the basket in the back. And of you seen him? Right? And what does he do? He calls attention to himself wherever he goes. Have you ever noticed that? Always, because he isn't content to be on the sidewalk, you know, or to only go out at night. He goes out in the middle of the day and he drives down the middle of the road and not just at the side on the shoulder, but in the middle of the road. He makes a principle out of his weakness. Right? People aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to know that they are the defective. They are... Those who are an embarrassment to the public and they're supposed to shut their mouths. If you want to be Mexican in America, that's fine. But shut your mouth. Work in our backyards. You know, don't march. <laughs> you know, don't, don't demand anything because you're here by our benevolence. And we'll wink at you if you wink at us. You see, that's how poor people are supposed to act when they're around rich people. They're not supposed to call attention to themselves. I'll never forget one time when Mary Lee showed up, and I hadn't quite finished for the day at the Spalding's, and uh, (laughs) my wife, uh, having a firmly established sense of who she is, um, instead of waiting in the car down in the parking area, she went into the yard and went on the back deck of the mansion and sat in one of the chairs on the back deck of the mansion. And the mistress of the mansion came out and found a strange woman. I'd worked for her for a couple of years, but she'd never seen my wife. And so she comes out, and she sees Mary Lee sitting there, and she says in a very imperious way, which is how rich people talk to nobodies, said, who are you, or what are you doing here, or, May I help you? And what did you say? Huh? Oh, she doesn't remember. And so I want you to feel the tension. You've got these people who are illegal aliens, blind, men with goiters, an embarrassment to the crowd, and they're screaming, they're yelling, they're calling attention, they're demanding that the crowd stop and that Jesus come over and that Jesus help them. That's the tension. Now, a couple of points from that. Number 1 Was the crowd good or bad? Was the crowd good or bad? The crowd was bad. The crowd was not helping. It was the crowd and it was bad. Now to say it's a crowd gets us off the hook a little bit because actually was the church good or bad? And you say, well, it's not the church. I say, okay, they're all headed up to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holy day. They're the people of God. Were they good or bad? And the answer is they were bad. Why? Because they were an obstacle between the blind men and Jesus Christ. So in what way are we as a congregation an obstacle between blind men and Jesus Christ? You say, you know, Tim, you come up with the darndest things to say about Scripture. You know, I've heard this preached many times. I've never heard that point made. You know, why don't you just take the direct points of Scripture? You know, the points that are clear. I mean, isn't this a nice story, really, because the blind men are healed? I say, well, what do you think the Bible says that... The crowd told him to shut up and they yelled the more. What do you think the point of that is? If all scripture is profitable, what about that scripture? The crowd said shut up and the people cried out all the more. (laughs) It must be profitable, right? Right? Now, I'm going to save myself, okay? I'm going to tell you that people that really know what they're talking about made this point Calvin okay here's what Calvin says Calvin says those who follow Jesus through a sense of duty and a sense of respect wish to drive wretched men from the favor of Christ and so far as they're able to prevent the exercise of Jesus power let me read this again those who follow Jesus through a sense of duty and of respect Wish to drive wretched men from the favor of Jesus, and so far as they're able to prevent the exercise of Jesus' power. But it frequently happens that the greater part of those who profess the name of Christ, instead of inviting us to Him, rather hinder or delay our approach. Come on, people, come on, I got you. It's not just me, I'm not an idiot. Men who really know what they're talking about say the same thing. But of course, Calvin's only pointing to what the text says. God could have ordained to just tell you that two men who were blind in Jericho were healed on the way up to the Passover. But God chose to tell you that the crowd tried to tell them to shut up and that the men only got louder and said, And so there's the tension, there's the conflict, and the question is, will we learn? And of course, one of the things for us to learn is that if Jesus stopped and Jesus healed them, that God wants His Son to be the source of healing for people who are wretched. And that if we think that we need the people who are lawyers and doctors and the people with PhDs and the people who are rich and the people who are white and the people who aren't here who are illegal aliens, because what does an illegal alien matter anyhow? Then we're not doing the work of God. And that's always the conflict for a preacher. It's the conflict for the elders. It's the conflict for the Titus two women. Always the conflict is whether the church belongs to God or to us. And if it belongs to us, the blind people will shut their mouths because we're telling them to. But if it belongs to God, the church is filled with the blind. Because God is always on the side of the poor and the oppressed and the wretched and the despised. This is what Scripture tells us over and over again. As a matter of fact, the people that were chosen to be the people of God were chosen precisely because they were ciphers. This is what God said to tell them when they say to themselves after they get in the promised land, look at what we with our own hands have done. The Bible actually says, no, I chose you as a nation, the Jews, because you're absolutely disgusting. Because you were a naked child on the floor, covered in your mother's blood and your own blood, and I picked you up. And I set my love on you and I cleaned you up and I gave you new life. And so churches that have the heart of God are going to be churches that don't pass by the blind and the wretched and the men with goiters and the illegal aliens. Of course, it's counterintuitive because you have to pay the bills. And most of all, most of all, I have to be paid. Don't ever forget that. Because where would we be if I weren't paid? Right? And how are we going to pay them if we have a bunch of guys with goiters in our church? And this is what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that the people of God are always behind the grace of God. And by behind, I don't mean supportive. I mean opposed. We always want God to do it the way we think it should be done, which is to fill the church up with people that drive nice SUVs and that don't cry out ever in a worship service. Yes, gentlemen. What? <laughs> why even matthew henry says the same thing he says these poor blind men were rebuked by the multitude that followed christ note this is matthew henry note the sincere And serious beggars at Christ's door commonly meet with the worst rebukes from those that follow him, but in pretense and hypocrisy. The waltz. Now, why am I hammering this home to you today? Because we're going into a section of Matthew that is unbelievably intense. This is really the last upbeat section of Matthew for a long time. What happens from this point on is that Jesus has to be killed, and so he has to commit the crimes. And so commit them he does in spades. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, what Jesus does from this point on is he engages the hypocrites of the people of God. He tells parable after parable, he's confronted again and again, and every single time what he's doing is pointing out that God is not the point, the object of the worship of his people, but rather it's all self-worship, it's all self-security, self-promotion, self-will, it's all of self. And so again and again, he tells parables like the parable of the landowner who left his vineyards to be worked and was an absentee landlord. And when he sent back to get the returns on what he had left them, what do they do? They refuse. And then he sends more servants and they kill the servants. And then he sends his son. And what do they do to his son? They say, this is the heir. If we kill him, we'll be be safe. And so they kill the son. And Jesus says, now, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, come on. How can you miss it? You can't miss it. What's the vineyard? The vineyard's the church. Who are the absentee landlords' representatives in the vineyard? Who are they? Come on. Now, come on, today, who? The preachers, the pastors, the elders, right? And what do they do? They use the church for their own support. They milk the church. They kill the sheep instead of caring for them. Do you understand this? And Jesus tells story after story after story about this. And then guess what? It's unbelievable when he gets to Jerusalem. All of them turn out to welcome him and they proclaim him the Messiah. And what do the religious leaders do? Well, the religious leaders, if you can believe it, they tell the children to shut up. And if you can believe it, Jesus says, the stones would cry out if the children were silent. Amazing, But creation does give the praise to God that we refuse to give to him. Well, we're busy writing our dissertations about how there was a big bang once. The stones cry out. (laughs) And then what happens? Jesus just really doesn't know what he's doing. He goes into the temple and he takes a whip and he cleans out the temple. And that's not the end of it. He then goes and he's bam, 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 bam. He tells stories, you know. The fig tree doesn't feed him one day. And it just seems that he's really, um, what's the word? uh, There's a word for this. uh, Arbitrary, but that's not the word. You know, he curses the fig tree because it doesn't feed the creator. You know, and there's all this... All this conflict about the church, the people of God, the Jews, giving him glory. And and that's why they're made. That's why they exist. And they refuse to do it. The temple has been turned into a place where all the Christian booksellers sell. All the plaques with the nice little Christian sayings. All the contemporary music bands. Billions and billions of dollars of business a year. And we all say it's about Jesus. And we sing breathy songs into a microphone about our love for Jesus. And there's lots of money to be made. And when the blind men cry out. Come on, guys. Are you awake or asleep? What do the people say? And all of you say what? Come on, say it. Come on, say it again. And all the people say. And if you don't believe in drama and worship, you just participated in it. (laughs) (laughs) So the first lesson we have to learn here is that the church is an obstacle to the grace of God. And it's. Our privilege to repent. It's our privilege to repent. I have to mention it. Do you remember me telling you the story at my last church of the of the man who in the middle of a communion service one time was crying out with tears? Do you remember in the next elders' meeting, the elders rebuked me because there was a man that was crying out in tears during communion. You remember that? That only was like Visually, what is always true slightly below the surface, which is notorious sitters and the despised and the rejected and the illegal aliens and the men with goiters and the men who are blind are supposed to just shut their mouths and be under the surface you know because after all, the mothers don 't want people like that associating with their children, you know. And people, this is a church where blind and deaf and dumb and despised and goiters, people who live like refugees are, are at home. This is your church. Not because I say so, but because it's true. If you could see you like I see you, <laughs> all of us live like refugees. What did Bill Downey call us? I think of the church. something like the refugee church. Now, there's another half to this, and that's the other half of the conflict, and that's you. Every one of you does have a goiter. Every single one of you. Every one of you is blind, and every one of you is an illegal alien. And you have a choice. You're either going to let the church and the preachers and Jerusalem intimidate you, or you're going to... And that's the choice that every one of us has. God is pleased for us to make asses of ourselves in public for the sake of the kingdom of God. Okay? And it may be that you're not blind and so you can't ask to have your sight back. It may be that you have a besetting sin and every single week in your small group you're going to have to ask the people to pray for your besetting sin. And it's so humiliating. You know, you wish you had a drape that you could pull around your goiter. So nobody sees it, but certainly not open it up and say, would you lay hands on this and pray for this? And yet that's what these blind men did. You remember what the Bible says? It says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is what? Is what? Taken, come on, by force and violent men sees it. But you thought that was just a metaphor, right? Until you heard the blind men screaming, Son of David, Lord, have mercy on us! And then you realize that it's small group today, and with your wife tomorrow, and with your pastor, with your elders, with the older women, you're going to have to expose your goiter. You're going to have to ask for prayer. You cannot be proud and approach Jesus. You cannot be proud and approach Jesus. You can't maintain your dignity and your, your, your lauded status. You, you can't be a cool dude and be a Christian. Because a Christian is somebody that's naked to the world. Because we take up our cross and follow Christ. And he was on the cross and he was naked for all the world to see at the very crossroads of the city. And he says, we are to take up our cross and follow him. You know who I have hope for in this church? I have hope for those who are naked. Whose sins are there for everybody to see. The people I have absolutely no hope for, except for the power of God, are those who hide their sins. And we never hear about them. And if one's found out, then they have a good explanation for it. <laughs> and we all know what that's about. Well, there was one time I thought I was wrong, but then it was, that was the time that I thought I was wrong. But it turned out I was right. In other words, we have to avoid being the church where only the cool people and, and, and the neat people and the dudes and, and the good soccer players and the, the SUV. And you say, why drive an SUV? It has nothing to do with an SUV. Come on. Get your mind out of the gutter. You know, make the application. Stop being a literalist. You know what I'm saying. The people that are clean, the people that are cool, the people that all the world goes after. Okay. We can be that church or we can be the despised and rejected, the people that take up the cross, the people that are the sodomites and and the fornicators and the adulterers and the thieves and the child molesters and the gossips and and, and the divisive. Which are we going to be? Remember, Jesus said that he came for the sinners and not for the righteous. Which are we going to be? Okay, and then on the other side of it, Which are you going to be? Are you going to be a clean Christian who always is happy to help others? Or are you going to be crying out, And so Jesus went over to them and Jesus said, what? What do you want from me? Seems like a stupid question. It's not stupid. There are many people who are blind, who are quite content to remain victims and to have a gravy train of victimhood. Oh, they love their weakness. They nurse it. And it is the principle by which they relate to every other person. Don't take it for granted that they wanted to have their sight. They could have continued to beg and never to sweat. But what they said is, what? We want to say. Give us our sight. And so Jesus did what? Jesus healed them. Wasn't enough for them to cry out, son of David, have mercy on us. But after they had cried that out and the people shut them up and they would cried it out all the more. Then Jesus came over and said, what do you want from me? And this should teach us about the nature of prayer. Prayer is, it's a word I love, pertinacious. Or a synonym, mulish, Obstinately uh, stubborn, stubbornly obstinate. Uh, if you don't mind, Phil Henry-ish. <laughs> Beyond any reasonable... Uh, tenacity. (laughs) Boom! Remember how just about the time you're tired of Phil lecturing you about something, he starts in as if he hadn't yet begun. Remember this? What a wonderful shepherd. For those of you that don't know, Phil preached his first sermon in this church, and his first sermon was one hour and 37 minutes long. This is the definition of these blind men. The crowd says shut up. They're louder. Jesus comes over. They say it again. They will not allow their pride to get in the way. And so what has happened? Well, it says here that they're healed. And it says in the other synoptics that they were were healed, that they were made well. And that means that they were united with Jesus Christ. So, that's the story. That's the war. I have one other word, an application for you. If you'll look with me at Matthew 10, please. Jesus says this. Look at 32, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, people, we all know what is at stake. We all know how much we are ashamed of Jesus. We all know how little we do want to speak up for Jesus. Let's be honest. There are a few of us who are Peter's, but most of us are are John's reticent or Andrew and James. Right. And Jesus says, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father is in heaven. And then, look, he says, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And so we see, we see these two blind men, and these two blind men are against everyone, against the world. Do you see that? Do you see it? They're against the world. The whole world tells them to shut up, accept the Messiah. And so they're at odds, and they're not ashamed. It's their principle to cry out in the face of the crowds. Now... You see that we as a church have to make sure that we don't oppose the blind men crying for Jesus. That's an obvious application, but I want to get much more intimate now and say to you, if your mother and your father and your mother-in-law and your husband has opposed your faith, This is what Jesus meant when he said he has come to set us against the most intimate members of our family. (coughs) You know if this is the case. You know if your parents, we've had one of the most horrible things I've seen this last year, is a father of a home intentionally, for the sake of his own pride, poisoning his children against the church of jesus christ no question about it none and all of you have had times in your life where you've seen your parents and your preachers and your elders and your teachers and your wives try to lead you away from jesus christ and i want to say to you that there is only one relationship that matters And That's your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that I don't believe in the authority of elders? No, no. (laughs) But what it does mean is that that moment where you have a choice between having the approval of your wife or husband or mother or father and the approval of God... And if you seek the approval of men, your voice will be silent. You won't open up your goiter. You won't cry out to Jesus. Then at that moment, you have to see that Jesus has brought the sword into your life. And that if you are going to live, you need to stand against those who are most precious to you. And you need to cry out. And you can't let your husband stand in your way. Jesus wasn't just being hypothetical here in this warning. It is really true that the religious leaders and our spouses and our children and our mothers-in-law will really be the obstacle to our soul. And so what I want to say to you is, if you saw that staying married to that man would destroy your soul and the soul of your children, I say God you and it is time for you to leave that man and you say are you telling somebody here to leave their husband and i'm saying if that's what's required for the souls of your children and your own soul then you need to do it and you say but god says he hates divorce And I say God does hate divorce, but there's something God hates more, and that is that we use the relationships of men in such a way as to silence the soul's hunger before the living God. No church, whether it's Rome, the Vatican, or whether it's Church of the Good Shepherd, should stand in the way and be an obstacle between a man approaching God. You see, these things aren't safe. They aren't safe. There is no relationship, whether between a church or between our husband and wife, that should come between our relationship with God. And you say, well, I'm all confused, Pastor. And I say, well, I'm only quoting what Jesus said. What do you think he meant when he said that he would set a husband against his wife? Let's pray.